here today. Um, and so uh, we're going to take a, a, a short series um, called The Bible. And today we're going to look at kind of the Bible and science, specifically the Bible and Noah's flood. Um, there is a movement in evangelical circles today, um, unfortunately, alive and well, that is doubting uh, the reliability of the biblical text. And so I want to address that issue um, today, next week, and the following week. Um, today we're specifically looking at the Bible and science. Um, you know, atheist scientists say that Noah's flood never happened. Um, intellectual elitists who are unbelievers say that, and even some believers say that, well, you know, Noah's flood never happened. And liberal and now even conservative theologians have caved and are saying that the Noah's flood never happened, at least the way the Bible reports it. And so we want to ask this very important question is, did Noah's flood really happen the way the Bible says it does? And so that's our plan today, and then that'll, that'll lead us to a conversation of why does it even matter? Um, our text for today is Genesis chapter 7, so if you have your Bibles, you can flip over there. Genesis chapter 7, we'll be reading verses 11 through 12, and as is our custom here at Hebron, and it's with intention, is to stand for the reading of God's Word. So I'm going to ask if you would do that. We stand both to recognize um, respect for God's Word, but also that this is where truth comes from. I've been hollering, I've been talking about this for the last 10 years. Um, I hope it's sinking in more and more um, as you move through life, but Anyhow, uh, let's read together Genesis chapter 7, verses 11 and 12. Here we go. In the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, on that day all the springs of the great deep burst forth, and the floodgates of the heavens were opened, and rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. You may be seated. So that's just a little bit of the story of the beginning of all this water coming uh, onto the earth. So I just want to jump in here. And I want to first state that if you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, then the evidence that, uh, that supports the historicity of Noah's flood comes from right here. It comes from the Bible. So if you have a relationship with Jesus, the Bible says that this really was a historical event. Job chapter 22 confirms this. Isaiah 24 says this. David affirmed it in Psalm chapter 104. Peter affirms Noah's flood twice in 1 Peter and then again in 2 Peter. And of far greater evidence than these is the Lord Jesus himself who said in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 37, he said, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be with the coming of the Son of Man, verse 38. For in the, in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered into the ark. So here we have the Lord Jesus on record saying, verifying the historicity of of the biblical flood as it's described here in Genesis chapter 7. And so for those of us who are followers of Christ, that should just settle it for us, that the Bible all through is consistent in its uh, understanding that the biblical flood really did happen, that Jesus himself, who is God in the flesh, uh, believed that it really did happen, and so that should settle it for us. But for many of us as believers, because we're ra raised in more of a scientific mindset, we would like some scientific evidence to bring to bear to corroborate this biblical story. We would like some empirical evidence, some scientific evidence. And so you ask, well, is there any proof like that? Absolutely there is. There's mountains of it. And so that's what I want to do here is just talk a little bit about some of the scientific evidence here. i got three different uh, categories of scientific evidence. First, the geological. Then we're going to talk about the biological evidence. And then we're going to talk about the, uh, the evidence from um, anthropology. And I'll get to that here in just a little bit. But first of all, let's take a look at the geological evidence. I have a picture for you here. 
Uh, by the way, I have a lot to cover, so that's why I'm talking so fast this morning, so just hang with me. A picture here of the Grand Canyon. You can see the strata layers, the layers of the sediment that had been laid down, and then that uh, formed into rock over the course of some time. But geologists want to say that the, the length that it took for all these sediment layers to be laid down one upon another upon another was to about 250 million years. And so that's what geologists tell us. And, then, and that's the result of the seas having risen up above the Grand Canyon and then dropped um, sediment layers, and then the seas receding, and then the seas coming up again, dropping more sediment layers, the seas receding. And this happens over and over over the course of time, and what you get is what you see in that picture there, which are these sediment layers one upon another as the seas rose up over the Grand Canyon and deposited more sediment layers. Well, they got part of the answer right. And the part of the answer that they got right is that those sediment layers were distributed by water. But the water that distributed them there, or that all happened all at one cataclysmic flood event. And the only evidence that exists in geology to, to refute the idea that all of those sediment layers were laid down in one cataclysmic event is a particular area in the Grand Canyon that's our layer that's called the Coconino, uh, the Coconino Sandstone. And so we have a picture of that for you as well. And you can see the strata layer of the Coconino Sandstone. It's about 100 feet thick, some places as much as 1,000 feet thick. And it's just literally sand that was laid down in between all these sediment layers um, that were laid down by water. And so what geologists have said is that this sand was actually an ancient desert sand. And that this ancient desert sand was laid down in between these layers of sediment that had come in from the waters rising, the waters receding, waters rising, waters receding. And so how can you have, if all of these layers are to be accounted because of a global catastrophic flood, how can you account for an ancient dry sand desert in the middle of all of these water layers. You follow me so far? Okay, so that's their question. Well, if any of them had bothered to go out and take a core sample of some of this sandstone, they would have realized uh, the answer to their question. Um, see, water, sand that is laid down like this uh, can be laid down in one of two ways. Either it's laid down by winds blowing the sand and it's turning over one another, or uh, it's laid down by water. Sand that has been laid down by winds and, and all that sort of stuff, sand's been affected by winds, the sand crystals themselves would be rounded, would be very uh, smooth in the edges because of they've been blown around by the winds and they've been roughed over by, one, by other sand crystals. But the sandstone in the Coconino uh, layer, sandstone layer, is actually has rough and bumpy edges, which, which, which is consistent with sand that had been laid down uh, by water itself. So this sand that you're looking at there in the Coconino Desert has never seen wind before. It had only, it was basically, you think of it like a sandbar, where it brings in a bunch of sand, all that sand's laid down, and so that accounts for the Coconino uh, layer of, of sandstone. Um, so what we have with the Grand Canyon and with the geologic record all across the world is, a, is clear evidence of the massive upheaval of sediment layers globally, and then that redistributed and settled across the globe. One other evidence from geology are the massive deposits of coal that exist in pockets around the world. So you all know how coal is formed. Maybe you remember studying this in your earth science class. Okay, we're going to take you back to what was it, 10th grade for me? I don't know what it was for you all. But in any case, here's how coal is formed. Coal is formed when massive amounts of vegetation, trees, plant life, that sort of thing, um, are all gathered together in these massive mats, if you would, intertangled mats of, of organic material. 
and then uh, covered up by sediment layers, one upon another upon another, and all this done very quickly. And that the sediment layers can go hundreds of feet thick, even thousand feet thick. And then over time, because that bunch of trees, that whole massive forest has been gathered together in a big mat, it's been covered over by layers, it's not exposed to oxygen, so it does not decompose. And then the pressure from all of that weight above it, you've ever been out to a river before, you stepped in river mud, or you've been out to the pond, you stepped in the pond mud, and you tried to pull your foot up out of that pond mud, you know how heavy that pond mud is on your foot when you're trying to pull it out. Well, you can imagine layers that are hundreds of feet thick, even a thousand feet thick, bearing down on that massive mat of vegetation, that massive mat of organic material, and over the course of time, uh, it heats up because there's clay minerals inside of that, and we can see this consistent in all the coal beds across the planet. The clay acts as a catalyst, and that that clay causes the organic material to heat up, and then over the course of time, because of pressure and heat, it then turns into coal. So the question is, well, how long? Because I've heard that it takes like millions of years for coal to form. Well, that was until 1984, a guy by the name of Dr. Hayatsu and his colleagues introduced various types of clay mineral, minerals into a sample of softwood material, and they placed that material under high pressure and 300-degree heat, which is consistent with what coal forms at, and they formed coal, and guess how long it took? Two months. I didn't do this experiment. Dr. Hayatsu did this experiment, okay? This is, you can look it up, you can Google it uh, later on today if you'd like to. But anyhow, um, experimenting with some different organic materials and different clay mineral types, in some cases they form coal in as little as 24 hours. 24 hours. In fact, this is, you can observe this today. Scientists observe this today because when Mount St. Helens erupted in 1980 and it leveled the forest for two mi 12 miles out, and, I mean, you've seen the results of, of massive uh, volcanic eruptions where the forests are just leveled out, and the pyroplastic flow then comes out, and so you have all this mud and all this water that's just oozing out from the mountain, rushing out from the mountain. It gathers together these massive mats of vegetation, and a lot of those trees were, put in the, were sent into the bottom of Spirit Lake, which is not too far away from Mount St. Helens, and within four years... Um, after the ash layer had settled down on top of all these massive amounts of, of tree and organic material, that scientists began to notice that the coalification process had already begun there on the bottom of Spirit Lake. So it doesn't take millions of years. It just takes the right amount of heat and the right amount of pressure and the introduction of coal, certain, I'm sorry, certain clay minerals, which is exactly which is consistent with coal across the planet. All right, so let's move on to the biological data, if you would, the biological data. And so in this, I want to talk just a little bit about fossils. You know, we've discovered over the last hundreds of years tons of fossils, fossils of fish, fossils of marine life, fossils of invertebrates like jellyfish and sponges, fossils of a whole whale. I mean, you've got all these fossils around the planet. But the problem is, and this is a really big problem, and that is that the fossil process is not happening on our planet today. It's not happening. There's no fossilization of stuff on our planet today. And the reason is because when a fish dies in the ocean today, what happens to that fish? The sharks come, the little fish come, and before you know it, that, that whatever it was has decomposed on the bottom of the ocean or it's eaten up as fish food by other fish. Uh, for example, when the white man went out west and he shot all the buffalo up and there's these buffalo carcasses left behind from where he took the hides, you don't find hundreds of years later a bunch of fossilized buffalo laying out on the prairie and the reason is because the carcass of whatever it was that died had to be covered up 
here we go, had to be covered up by massive layers of sediment, buried under that sediment, so that then the fossilization process could take place. Otherwise, it would decompose. And so, um, again, what happens is it has to die suddenly, and then all the sediment layer has to be buried on top of, uh, tons of the sediment has to be buried on top of it in order to create the, create the correct conditions for the fossilization process to take place. The point is that these fossil-making conditions do not exist under the normal conditions of our world today. There are, not, there are no fossils being made in our world today. Only a cataclysmic event like Noah's flood could possibly explain how you get globally all of these fossils across the planet. Now, if you remember, this past June, I had a friend of mine, a buddy of mine from college. He's also a missionary in El Alto, Bolivia, Andy Baker and his wife, Andrea Baker. Do you remember them being here? They talked about their ministry in the red light district of El Alto, Bolivia. And uh, he is a mountaineer, and they live at El Alto. I mean, it's called, that's called the, the Tall. That's the name of the city, right? Isn't it Alto? It's Tall. I mean, Tall. My Spanish has been a little while. But anyhow, so the name of the city, and it's, it, it is the, one of the highest cities in the world, if not the highest city in the world uh, per population. Um, it sets at around 11,000 feet, I believe. And so he likes mountaineering, and so he goes up into the mountains there where they live in Bolivia. And uh, he said he got to a, a summit at a mountain somewhere around 13,000 feet. And as he's approaching the peak of this mountain, about ready to summit this mountain, he looks off to his side and he sees there in the rock a fish fossilized in the side of the rock. And he thinks to himself, because he's a sharp guy, he says, hmm, wonder how a fish got up here. Y'all, right, you follow me on that. Okay, all right, so just pointing that out. And so you know, he and I both kind of got a chuckle out of that. Um, <clears throat> Well, let's shift gears again, and let's consider, I know it's been a little while since y'all been in the science classroom, but you're doing good. Y'all hang with me so far? All right, so let's, um, let's shift gears again and think about one more piece of evidence, and that is the anthropological data, the anthropological data. Anthropology is the study of cultures. Um, a professor at Georgia State University of all things, a guy by the name of James Strickling, said, and uh, he, he, he was thinking to himself, hey, look, if there's all these, if the global flood really did happen, you would think that there would be legends in the, in the, in the stories of ancient civilizations. Like ancient civilizations would have some story, some account of some sort of a flood event. And so he went searching for this, went hunting for this. And what he found was that there are 56 such flood legends in North America alone among ancient civilizations. He also discovered that there's about 46 flood legends that he found in Central and South America. He discovered that there's 31 flood legends amongst the ancient civilizations of people who lived in Europe. He discovered that there's 17 flood legends amongst people of the ancient civilizations that lived in the Middle East. He discovered 37 flood legends amongst people who lived in the South, uh, South Sea Islands and in Australia. That's 190 flood legends amongst people of ancient civilizations that are totally disconnected, different parts of the world, have nothing to do with one another. Um, and in all of these flood legends, he points out that there were three similarities, three similarities in all of these flood legends. The first one was that the flood was global, and it wiped out all of humanity, all of the animal life and plant life. Secondly, a second similarity is that there was a vessel of safety. And the third similarity is that some human beings, some people and animals, were saved. Now, you say, well, Gordon, that's pretty remarkable, but at the same time, how do you account for the difference? I mean, because the Bible's got a different story than what those folks in the South Seas had. 
I mean, how do you account for that? Well, I account for that because, one, Noah and his family walked off the ark, and the, the human population then took off from there and then dispersed across the planet. And then as in its dispersion across the planet, those stories beca- became corrupted, became other, you know, linked to other stories, and, and, and the, the story itself, the version of it, became corrupted. And so what we have contained in the Bible, therefore, is the real story, the true story, of what really happened with Noah and the ark and the flood. The Bible's been true all along, friends, and it continues to be true. What I'd like to do now is to give you a very brief treatment of the biblical text itself, okay? Um, Looking at these verses that we just talked about, Genesis chapter 7, verses 11 and 12. Maybe you could bring that up for us. Genesis chapter 11, just two verses here. Or Genesis chapter 7, verse 11. It says, In the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, on that day all the springs of the great deep burst forth and the floodgates of the heavens were opened. See, the big question for a lot of scientists who are like, well, okay, I hear all the evidence, but I'm still having trouble with where all this water came from because the water could not come from the clouds. There's not enough rain that could have poured on the earth in order to create a flood that would have covered up the mountains and everything. Um, And so the verse, though, answers these questions for us. It says there in verse 11, where did all the water come from? It came from the springs of the great deep. That is, that geysers, that massive springs burst burst forth from beneath the earth's surface. I mean, Reen Michael's out there drilling around in your backyard trying to get water for your house. I don't know if y'all know, but anyway, maybe some of y'all had him drill well for you. But in any case, there's water underneath of the earth, and this water burst up through the surface of the earth, and springs shot up through the earth, and that is a big part of where all the water came from that allowed the flood to take place. But that wasn't the only place where a lot of the water came from. Again, the Bible tells us where that water came from. Look again at verse 11. It says, and also the floodgates of the heavens were open. In the Hebrew, that word heaven, lots of times, heavens, is lots of times referring to the sky, referring to literally like up above the earth, not referring to uh, heaven like we think of where Jesus is right now, but literally the heavens as in the sky above the earth. Um, And so flip over with me really quickly to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 6. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 6, just look at a couple verses here. And it talks a little bit about the sky and about the heavens and about what the earth looked like in the pre-flood period. The earth as it was in the pre-flood period, according to the scriptures, was different than our earth today. And I don't mean like the structure of the earth. I mean like the whole thing, the globe, the way things were put together. So let's take a look at it and see what the Bible has to say. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 6, it says... Where am I at? Genesis chapter 1, verse 6, it says, Let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. And then verse 7, So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it. So God put an atmospheric layer between the water on the earth and water up above. Now, what if I'm a college student and I was studying the Bible, I was a Bible major in college, Christian ministries, philosophy, theology, all that stuff, and I ran upon these verses, and I'm starting to think of them you know, with some questions in my mind. And one of the questions I ran into is that how come God here in the initial verses here says that what's up above us is water. And I'm thinking, boy, those ancient people were so stupid because they looked up at the blue sky. You follow me? 
or look up at the blue sky, and they said, well, there's water up there. And that was kind of my understanding of this verse until I got a little bit deeper, dug a little bit deeper in the scientific side of it and realized what God had done. Let me show you a picture here of what God had done. This is a picture of the earth in the pre-flood state. What God had done was he put a water vapor barrier that surrounded the earth. And that's what that little white line represents around the earth. That God had placed an atmospheric layer between the water below. Remember, land hadn't been formed yet between the water below and the water, literally, water vapor above. And so that was the pre-flood earth. So what you get in the pre-flood earth, probably hadn't heard this in your science class or read this in your your books, but in any case, you're learning something here this morning, I hope so. In any case, in the pre-flood earth, what you get is basically an earth that has this greenhouse effect, this... um, this water vapor barrier that surrounds it that forms a greenhouse effect on the planet. What that means is, you ever walked in a greenhouse before? It's usually about the same temperature, whether it's cold outside or hot outside, it doesn't matter. It's always kind of about the same temperature. And so what you get is you don't have a polar north and a polar south, and you don't have a warm equator around the middle. You have a temperate climate all the way around the planet at all times because the earth existed in this greenhouse type effect, this greenhouse environment. Uh, in which the earth uh, was encased. Because of that, because you don't have a cold polar north and south and a warm equator, you don't get weather. The reason why we have weather is because when, when the waters of the Atlantic go down below South America and cross the tip of Magellan Strait, it gets really cold. And then that cold weather makes its way up along the continents and it brings with it cold air or warm air as it's traveling back through and all of that creates the weather that you and I experience and again this is totally consistent with what the Bible says that Noah in his day never saw rain you say God how can that possibly be well because the world that Noah was born into the world that he knew was a world that is very different than the world in which we live today it was a greenhouse type of world it was a walking around in shorts and flip-flops all the time type of environment, okay? They, they had never seen rain. That means they had never had a Hurricane Matthew. That means they had never had a tornado, never seen a lightning bolt, not even a cloud. And so here goes Mo, or Moses. Here goes Noah out there to build this ark for all this water that's coming, and he's never even seen rain before. But when that rain was really in that water vapor barrier around the earth was released onto the earth, that's a part of where all of that water came from that flooded the earth and i could say more oh i could go on and on and on but in any case i hope you begin to see that if you dig into this stuff that there's a really good science there's real for intellectual to to satisfy the intellectual mind okay so you learned something right (sighs) maybe not i don't know maybe i'm the only one who did here this morning but anyway um, that's as far as you want to go with our treatment of this topic and so that means it's time for us to ask our most important question which is, what difference does all this make to my life? You say, Gordon, I appreciate the science lesson, but I mean, that was the flood 5,000, 6,000 years ago. I don't live in the pre-flood earth. I live in the post-flood earth. What difference does any of this make to you or to me? Well, let's talk about that. You know, um, I'm not sure how. Uh, I, mean, I could talk on and on here, but I'm just going to say as quickly and precisely as I can. I'm not sure how. You believe in a resurrection because the Bible told you so. But yet you deny the rest of the miracles of the Bible. 
I'm not sure how you hold on to the rest of the biblical text, but, oh, I've got to have a resurrection because then I can be resurrected from the dead. How convenient. And so what we here at Hebron and what has been the historic position of the church up until the last century is that the Bible is infallible. That means there's no falsehoods in its teaching. That means that God is who he tells us he is, who he reveals himself to be in this book. It means that our origins as humanity, how this world came to be, all of those things, there's no falsehoods in its teaching. It's infallible. And the historic opinion of the church has always been that the Bible is inerrant, that there are no errors in it. And if somebody comes along and says, well, what about this error? What about that error? Tell them, go talk to Pastor Gordon. Because right? I'll, I'll just knock them down one at a time. Walk, walk. I do it every week in my classes. Um, <clears throat> and so I want to share with you one more piece of evidence. And that's the evidence of personal eyewitness about Noah's flood. You say, Gordon, are we getting ready to get funky in here? What's going on? No, not going to channel something. I actually have a friend, and I have a picture of him. You remember this guy? We brought him out here to our church about two years ago. His name is Dr. Ron Charles. And uh, Dr. Ron Charles was part of an expedition that went to Turkey back in the early 1990s, and they discovered Noah's Ark. Say, what? <laughs> no, they did. Hands on it. Took core samples out of the side of the wood. And uh, he went up on Mount Ararat back in the early 90s with an expedition, a group of uh, U.S. scientists and archaeologists, plus a few other international people, and they discovered Noah's Ark. You see, a, a um, spy satellite for the U.S. had been going through that particular part of the world uh, because of some fighting that was going on, led up to something that we know as Desert Storm, or it was one of those one of those wars back in the 19, uh, with Iraq and all that. Um, <clears throat> and a spy satellite had noticed after an earthquake had taken place on Mount Ararat, which is about 14,000 feet top of it's totally encased in ice, that one of the parts of the mountain opened up, a fissure opened up in the ice cap, and there was some object there on top of this mountain at 14,000 feet. And so a group of Christians were like, well, let's go check that out. And um, here's the thing is, Ron went up there, took core samples. He said there was, it was, the, the ark was made out of gopher wood, just like what they had like the Bible says, gopher wood is not a type of wood. It's not like an oak tree or a maple tree. It's a laminating wood process where you take a sheet of wood, throw down tar and pitch, another sheet of wood, throw down more tar and pitch. And by the time he said they had in their core sample, the, the side of this boat was about four feet thick, which is exactly consistent with what the Bible has to say. So the dimensions were all there to, to confirm the biblical story. Um, took pictures of the event. One of the guys who was a devout atheist, he was the Russian pilot for Mikhail Gorbachev, uh, came to Christ as he was flying up around the mountain and sees this big boat there and is like, whew, okay, all right, I've been wrong all along. <clears throat> and you can see the power that a discovery like this would have. You say, well, Gordon, why isn't it all over the news? Why hadn't I heard about this? Well, there's a problem. When they got down to the bottom of the mountain, the Turkish government met them. And the Turkish government confiscated all their materials. You say, well, why would they do that? Well, because the Quran teaches that, Mo that Noah's Ark landed on some other mountain. 
And if it was true that Noah's Ark was on Mount Ararat, not some other mountain like the Quran says, then the Quran is false and the Bible's true. And the Turkish government wasn't interested in, they weren't interested in um, telling the truth, they were interested in protecting uh, Islam. So again, though, the problem is we're dealing with hearsay. There's no evidence. There's no evidence that Dr. Ron really um, saw this stuff. He lives over in Monroe, by the way. Uh, my brother-in-law is on the board for his mission agency. I've known him for years. He's a godly man. But still, I just, you know, it's hearsay. Well, about 18 months ago, Claire and I went to a wedding. And I'm sitting at the table at the reception, and there's this, um, <clears throat> there's this guy I'm sitting there with. He's an obstetrician. His wife's an obstetrician. Super smart guy. And I'm asking him all kinds of stories, hitting him with questions about his life, trying to figure out kind of his story and that sort of thing, getting to know him. And um, I, I said to him, I, you know, we finally got to the point where I was like, well, how did you become a Christian? How did you come to Christ? He says, well, I was 19 years of age, a student at the University of Georgia, and I was a Republican, and I did not like communism, and I wanted to wipe communism off the face of the earth. And he said, so I decided that I, my way of, you know, my life purpose to, rat, or to eradicate communism was going to be as a gun runner. I was like, well, how do you become a gun runner? He said, well, Russia at that time in the late 80s, early 90s, was invading into Turkey, and there was war going on there. And he said, so I wanted to supply the Turkish rebels with guns uh, in order for their, to fight against, the, um, fight against uh, the Russians and the spread of communism. I was like, well, that's a pretty you know, interesting aspiration for life. But in any case, and so um, he's telling me all about this. And he sa I said, well, um, but you said you were an atheist. You said you weren't, uh, uh, you said you, I'm sorry, skip, skip ahead there a second. I said, well, how are you going to get into Turkey? He said, well, um, there was a lot of humanitarian aid that was pouring into Turkey, but the only people who were allowed to come into Turkey with their humanitarian aid, the only people who were doing it at the time were the Christians. And I said, but you weren't a Christian. How are you going to get hooked up with Christians? He said, well, what I did was I started studying Christianity. In fact, this guy's an obstetrician here locally. He probably delivered some of your children, so I don't want to say his name because he might not want you to know that he wanted to be a gun runner when he was 19 years of age. But in any case, he, um, he said, I, uh, uh, where was I? Um, he, oh, how'd you, yeah, what about the Christian thing? I said, how are you going to join up with Christians if you're not a Christian? He said, so what I did was I started studying Christianity, and I researched and read the Bible. He said, and because of studying Christianity and learning about Christ and reading the Scriptures, I decided that I wanted to be a Christian. He said, and because I became a Christian, I decided that, uh, that I, I, I wasn't going to run guns into Turkey. Now, what does all that have to do with Ron Charles and the hearsay and the personal witness? I said, well, again, how are you going to get into Turkey? He said, well, there was this group of Christians that were going into Turkey under humanitarian auspices. But what they were really doing was they were going in there to go try and find the ark on Mount Ararat. Maybe some of y'all missed that. I don't know if I told the story very well. <clears throat> so here's this guy sitting at the table, doesn't know Dr. Ron Charles, has never met him in his life. I just happen to be sitting at the table talking to this guy, and he's telling a story about how in the early 90s he was going to go in with Dr. Ron Charles and this group of people who went to Mount Ararat to find the ark, which corroborates Dr. Charles' story about having put his hands on the ark, take core samples. It was made of gopher wood. It's up there on Mount Ararat. You follow my story so far. Okay. All right. So confirmation. We got it. Well, again, the story ends that this guy uh, read the Bible and gave his life to Christ. 
And so he said, then I discovered that Christians weren't really big on abortion and that the Bible had to teach about abortion. And he said, so I decided I was going to go out and blow up abortion clinics. And he said, but a wise Christian man came alongside me and said, maybe that's not exactly the way Jesus would do this. So I decided to become an obstetrician. So there's, there's the story. So here's my point. Here's my point in all that. The Bible is true. The Bible is true. It is powerful, friends, in the hands of Almighty God. And so we preach the Bible here cover to cover, unapologetically, as true. From Genesis chapter 1 all the way through to the close of the book, we are committed to its authenticity. We are committed to its accuracy. We agree with the historic doctrinal position of the church that it's infallible. That is, that there's no false teachings in what it has to say, and that it is inerrant, that there are no errors in it. John Wesley understood this when he said, a perfect God cannot produce an imperfect book. And George Whitfield, when he went out in the 1700s to preach revival and to launch that first great awakening here in the U.S., um, preached on the power of the word of God, friends, and it transformed and it changed lives just like that guy I was sitting at who became an obstetrician. Next week, we're going to talk about the Bible and archaeology. We're going to talk about the Bible and its reliability and how archaeological evidence corroborates the Bible. So this week we're talking about the Bible's true. Next week we're going to give you some more evidence to shore up any doubt that you may have that the Bible is true. And then the final week we're going to talk about well, why exactly does it matter? What is the big deal that the Bible's true? But here's how I want to conclude today. I know it's a lot to take in. Some of you may say, Gordon, I admit that the only voices I've been hearing with regard to the Bible are the secular, non-believing world when it comes to the Bible. And it has just about eroded my confidence in the Bible's truthfulness. So here's what I want for you to do in these quiet moments of communion is to tell the Lord that you're sorry you ever doubted. Tell the Lord that you're sorry that the voices that have been speaking into your mind are not His voice, but that are voices of a secular, non-believing world and to reaffirm your commitment to the Bible as wholly inspired as the Word of God says, 2 Timothy chapter 3, and verse 16, all of the Scriptures are God-breathed. To say, Lord, I might not understand it all, I might not be able to explain it all, maybe there's some other people out there smarter than me that can do that, but Lord, I want to affirm this morning that I believe it all. It's the power of God. And so... You want to affirm this morning that you will stand on the unbending, unshakable, eternal, truth-telling book that is God's truth in written form. Friends, if you make that the starting point of your <clears throat> where truth comes from, it'll transform your life. But you've got to put authority back in God's word to speak into your life. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for <clears throat> your great truth, which, Lord, when it collides with some of our worldview, some of the way we've been trained into, some of the things that have come down the pipe, I mean, this is nothing new to you, Jesus. You've been battling the wisdom of men for the ages. And yet, Lord, all through it, your word has stood faithful and true. We just want to say this morning, Lord, that whether we understand it all 
whether we can explain it all, we do believe it all. That its origin is from you. All scripture is God breathed. God, we can build our lives on your promises contained within. We can build our hope for a future in heaven based on your truths taught from this book. It's yours, Lord. It's from you. And we want to submit ourselves, Lord, again this morning, reaffirm our commitment, Lord, to the truthfulness of your written, your written word. God, we just open our hearts to you. Lord, if there's some questions that we still have, may we not just uh, leave those questions to linger. May we pursue those, Lord, who have gone before us to pursue answers to tough questions. And then, Lord, again, at the end of the day, we will stand firm on your truth. We thank you, Lord, for your death on the cross. We thank you for your shed blood, representing, Lord, your great love for us. We commit these next moments to you in Christ's holy name.